1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. We were gentle, gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being effectually desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. While we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same thing from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and who drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Pray with me one more time. Father, we lift up our eyes to the hills, to the mountains, and ask this question, from where does our help come from? And Father, we say this morning that our help comes from the Lord who made the mountains, who made the hills, and who made heaven and earth. And Father, it is in your ability to help us this morning that we cry out in prayer for you to do exactly that. Would you help us to Behold wonderful things out of your word to see and to savor and to in turn be transformed by that glory. Would you help us, Father, to focus and zoom in as we are addressed by you who are our Father and yet who are our King. Father, would you help us in ways of being like Christ. Would you grant us much aid by your precious, needed, powerful Holy Spirit. Help in preaching, Father, help in listening, help in going. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You might imagine that as one who preaches, you might imagine how much I love learning about preaching. 
Sometimes I may take it too far where I try to learn about preaching in the very week that I am preaching. And my wife reminds me that that's not the best of ideas, to try to add to your game right before the game is about to start. But even in learning about preaching, I'm reminded of the preaching that I grew up under in the African-American church in one dear, sweet aspect of it, which was called the call and the response aspect of preaching. There's a call and response in African-American preaching that holds a dear place in my heart. It is within this type of preaching where the preacher preaches in such a way that he actually pauses and waits for congregational participation. It's so important that there really is a pause. So the preacher may say something good, and there's a pause, and then you may hear somebody say, well. Or the preacher may say something else good, and then somebody in the top row may turn around and say, that's right, preacher. That's right. Or the preacher may find himself in trouble, and somebody calls out and says, help him, Lord. Help him. There's this call and response aspect to preaching that I find to be dear and true in the congregation's um, activity also that goes forth in preaching. Preaching is both from the pulpit and it's also both from the pew in this, in this aspect. What's interesting to think about, though, is that call and response did not uh, originate from the African-American church. It actually goes back even further to that through in the seasons and in the times of slavery. During escapes through for instance, the Underground Railroad, uh, there was a call and response that was given to help that person know whether if it was safe for them to cross over the terrain that they were going over. They would call, and then somebody who knew it was safe for them to come, they would respond. One way or example of this is in songs, a song called Wade in the Water. They might call out, wade in the water, and somebody may cry back or sing back out this song, wade in the water, to let them know it's safe for you to pass over the river. Even as call and response happens within the African-American preaching tradition, and as seen within the context of, of slavery, our text helps us to see that call and response even goes back further than that. Regardless if we ever call and respond from a preaching standpoint, we are all called to hear a call and to respond to it. And Paul is in front of us now waiting, or not waiting, but calling the Thessalonians to remember their call and response. It's from that that I would like to title this message, Call and Respond. And it's from that title I'd like to give you three points that for us to consider today. The first point is to remember the call. Paul is going to help us to see that and help the Thessalonians to see that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. The second section is to remember the response. Paul calls the Thessalonians to remember their response, and that's in verses 13 through 16. And then we want to end today asking a question, an application question, which is, why remember at all? Why is Paul preaching the way that he is preaching? Why did he write down the things that he wrote down? So let's think about it and jump into it. Our passage this morning unpacks, actually, in further detail what Paul started off in chapter 1. He started something off in chapter 1, and then he creates a pattern, and then in chapter 2, he unpacks this pattern and fills in the gaps, as it were. Paul felt so much thanksgiving to God that he actually did something in this letter that he does not normally do or had not done in any letter that we have in the text. 
Typically, in Paul's letters, he gives forth a thanksgiving. And yet this thanksgiving lasts probably about a paragraph in length. In Thessalonians, his thanksgiving overflows to such a degree that it creeps into actually three chapters of thanksgiving. Evidently, Paul was mighty thankful, and he couldn't contain himself. In chapter 1, we see him giving thanks. In chapter 2, we see him giving thanks. In chapter 3, we see him giving thanks. It's in the context of this thanksgiving that Paul sets forth this pattern of talking about his three-man team, including himself, Silas or Silvanus, as we see at the top of this book or this letter, and Timothy, talking about his team first, and then in turn he talks about the Thessalonians. In chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, you'd see that. If you have your Bible open, you can check that out. Chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, Paul was convinced that his brothers and sisters who were loved by God were actually chosen by God because the gospel did not come to them simply with words. We've all been exposed to people who are all talk and no walk. Nobody in here is like that. All talk and no walk associated with it. What Paul has given us here in this letter, in chapter 2, is an understanding that this gospel that showed up in Thessalonica was not all talk with no walk. Specifically, Paul says, our gospel. Did you catch that when we went through chapter 1 last week? Our gospel. He says, our gospel did not come simply with words. Our text helps us to see why Paul, our text this morning in chapter 2, helps us to see why Paul would talk in such a way. Why he would, even in other letters, call the gospel his gospel. Our gospel here in this chapter, as Paul tells us about it, our gospel came to you in three ways. It came in power, it came in the Holy Spirit, and it came in full conviction, according to chapter 1. It's often wondered, well, who experienced this full conviction? Did the gospel come with a great sense of certainty with Paul and his team, or did the Thessalonians experience this great sense of certainty? A clue to help guide us in trying to answer that question is right there at the end of verse number 5 in chapter 1. Paul is still talking about his team. He says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Like one Bible translation captures the thought well when it says this from Paul, we brought the good news to you with complete conviction of its truth. Our gospel came to you with the absolute confidence in our hearts that its contents were true. Before turning to the Thessalonians, Paul talked about the character of his team. He says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Instead of being all talk and no walk, Paul reminded the Thessalonians of what they already knew. Paul and his squad walk the talk. It's as if character, it's as if the character of their lives, what kind of men that they proved to be, bore witness to the deep certainty and the absolute confidence that they had in the truth of the gospel. In other words, Conviction was demonstrated by character. The gospel was so true 
that their lives evidenced it. Paul then, at this point in chapter 1, verse number 6, then now, at this point, he turns to the Thessalonians. And he adds more reasons for his thankfulness. Not only had the gospel come to the Thessalonians, but they became imitators. Keep that in mind. They became imitators of team Paul and the Lord when they received the word with joy in the midst of much affliction. They imitated so well that they actually became examples for those who were in the surrounding areas, examples as those who turned away from idols of their day to serve the living in the true God and to wait and to return for wait for the return of Jesus Christ. It's in the light of this pattern, Team Paul and then the Thessalonians, that chapter 2 unpacks that more with the details of the gospel call in the response. So let's consider the first part. Remember the call. I could imagine that if Paul lived today, 2020, he would probably enjoy Shutterfly and even hold this company. Y'all know who Shutterfly is? Shutterfly is a company that you're able to take your pictures and you to put on. You can put on mugs and you can put on, um, on uh, uh, canvas art and things of that nature. Right? I wonder if in Paul writing letters he would take use of Shutterfly to send forth pictures of things that he's trying to describe. I, in fact, I think Paul would probably even hold the company of Shutterfly to their guaranteed 100% happiness, right? Shutterfly understands that happiness can be found in memorable moments that once again are captured on things like canvas print or coasters or even travel mugs. Chapter 2, verse number 1 through 16, would fit nicely as a stroll down memory lane in one of Shutterfly's flush mount album with lay-flat pages of double silk satin finished paper. topped off with a hard matte photo cover with metallic accents. This chapter will fit well in that type of photo book as he calls his people to remind, to remember this stroll down memory lane. And if you ever made one of these Shutterfly books, you know that you can put titles on your pages. I think, I wonder if a title of this first section of this photo album would be called, We Share the Gospel. Look at verse number one and verse number two. Here now in chapter 2. It says, For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, by implication, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we have boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. In the rearview window of Paul's past was Philippi. Not only did he and Silas bear physical scars from that city, but they also carried with them into Thessalonica the baggage of social shame. Remember this story? Despite their innocence, they'd been stripped of their clothing, publicly beaten, and thrown in a maximum security jail. In the way of those times, this was no way to treat a Roman citizen. Roman citizenship in that day protected one against from such treatment. And when the leaders of Philippi found out who Paul and his team were, they were rightly afraid, and they publicly ushered Paul out of town. Now, let's be honest in the church here this morning. Some of us would have been done with sharing the gospel after our trip to Philippi. Somebody say, help them, Lord. 
Some of us would have thought, if this is what's going to happen to me every time I share the gospel, I'm good. I'm out. I'm not doing this anymore. Unfortunately, more times, more often than not, more times than we would like to admit, difficulties presses us to despise the call instead of the call fueling us to despise the difficulties for the joy that's set before us. Paul puts his team forth as a model of perseverance in the, rate, in the face of persecution. Forget about the show. The call must go on, right? Despite what happened to Paul at Philippi and, of course, before that at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, you can check out those stories in the, in the book of Acts, there was a vision that captured Paul of a man of Macedonia urging him and his team to come over to Macedonia and help us. And it's from that vision that Paul concluded that what help meant was that God was calling him and his team to go preach the gospel in Macedonia. If your biblical world map is a little fuzzy in your mind this morning, don't worry about it. Thessalonica is in Macedonia. And the gospel call had brought team Paul into town. Despite what happened in their past, Team Paul had boldness in their God to declare to the Thessalonians the gospel of God. In fact, courage was not defeated by discouragement. God helped them to proclaim the gospel call in the midst of what our text says was much, much, much conflict. I wonder if I have a friend in here this morning who is wondering what exactly is the gospel of God. That's a great question. The word gospel means good news, and what good news it is. You won't find this news on Fox or CNN or MSNBC or your Twitter news feed or Apple News or New York Times. The good news of God is captured well by Paul in another one of his letters where he said that in Jesus Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. In other words, because of Jesus' life and death and his resurrection, we can have peace with God because our sins won't be counted against us. Yeah, that's a good time to say that's good. Is that good news, anybody in here? That's good news right there. Friend, if you are in here and you are not a Christian this morning, though, I have bad news for you. Your sin against a holy and a righteous God has created an adversarial relationship between you and him. If you were to die in your sin, you would spend an eternity receiving the just penalty of your sin that is due to you. That's the bad news. But as you just heard, I got some better news for you. I got some good news for you. And the good news is that God is appealing to you right now, today, through this message, to be reconciled to him. In fact, I implore you, friend, if you're in here and you're not a Christian, to find yourself at peace with God through the forgiveness of your sin through Jesus Christ. In fact, I want you to talk to the person who you came with here, if you came with that person today, and ask them what it means to be reconciled to God. If you just wandered in here by yourself, come see me at the end. I'd love to share that with you. This is the good news from God that Paul declared to the sin-soaked city of Thessalonica and Thessalonica. And guess what had happened? Our text tells us that 
this preaching and this proclamation of the gospel of God was not in vain. Team Paul didn't leave town empty-handed. Their preaching was not without good results. In other words, God's gospel call brought forth gospel fruit through bold declaration. Where did Paul and his team find this boldness to preach the gospel in the midst of much conflict? Every football team has a guy on it that gathers all of the players around, probably pregame, and gives them the get-ready-for-the-game pep talk. There typically is a lot of yelling, and there's typically a lot of hitting of the shoulder pads and a lot, of, a lot of showmanship that's getting the team ready to step out onto the field. This talk typically happens during, at the beginning of the game, but sometimes if the game isn't going well, this pep talk by this person happens in mid-stride. In fact, this happened a couple of weeks ago with Patrick Mahomes, the quarterback from the Kansas City Chiefs. His team was down in the divisional playoff series in the second quarter, 24 to nothing. And while I'm not at liberty to disclose all that he said to his teammates in his rallying cry, part of what he said to his team was, let's go do something special, one play at a time, let's go do something special. And if you saw this, in fact, that is what exactly happened. His team won the game from being down 24-0 team won the game 51 to 31. Mahomes walked off the field that moment, that, that, that game, mounting an epic comeback for the ages with five touchdowns, no interceptions, and 321 yards in his pocket. Is this what Team Paul had to do to get themselves riled up and get ready to go into Thessalonica after their experience at Philippi? Somebody have to be the hype man and Timothy have to kind of go around and pat Paul and, and get Silas ready to go and say, hey, 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 let's get ready. Let's be bold and let's get this thing going. Game time, game time, game time. Game. Is that what had to happen? The text tells us that this boldness was not self-generated, right? This boldness did not come from within themselves but outside of themselves. He said, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the good news from God. Verse 4 unpacks where this boldness came from. Verse 4 says, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. This boldness of speech came from those who had the approval of God to be entrusted stewards of this gospel. Team Paul identified so much with being a steward, those whom the proclamation of the gospel was committed to, that they in turn turned around and called the gospel our gospel. Now, this is what happens with stewardship, right? It, it, when you're a steward of something, you take care of it, of what you are a steward of, as if it is your very own. The relationship with God as bearers of the greatest news on earth generated the boldness despite the difficulty that they had endured. As gospel messengers from God, they also stood out in a part on this crowded Thessalonian stage that they find themselves a part of. As a, a mid-90s child of East Coast hip-hop, I know well about what a crowded stage looks like. It seems like every single concert from M I saw on M MTV Raps or I saw uh, in other forms, every single concert or video, a hip-hop artist had every single person on the stage but his mama there accompanying his set. Right? 
city like Thessalonica would have been like this crowded hip-hop stage where all types of people would have been all about teaching and talking about things that would supposedly help you out in your day-to-day life. If you were walking across the city in the streets of Thessalonica, you would have heard from philosophers and religious enthusiasts and magicians using ear-pleasing rhetoric to not only garner your attention, not only to, to get your attention, but also to get your money, also to get what you can give them. Tickling ears was their tactic, and the end justified whatever means that they would use to proclaim their message. Team Paul would be different with their message. Since it is required of stewards to be found faithful, how many of y'all know that only faithful motives and tactics will do? Is that right? This is why Paul can say that their appeal in verse number 3 did not find its source in error. They were, not, they were not lying to the Thessalonians. How could they lie as ones who were sent with good news from God? If they were liars, so was the one who sent them. Their appeal wasn't soaked in the foul waters of impurity. Team Paul didn't preach for the wrong reasons. The declaration of the gospel of God wasn't their attempt to deceive their audience. They weren't out to trick anybody. Once again, their approved stewardship from God meant that these gospel dishonoring tactics were not an option to be used. Nothing has changed between Paul's day and ours. Those tactics which were wrong then, they're wrong now. And even how we are called to proclaim and share the gospel. Could it be that the why we share the gospel, the motive that fuels our desire to share the gospel, could it be that the why of sharing the gospel is as important as the content of the gospel itself, or as important as sharing that gospel? As a steward, Paul seemed to think that it mattered because at the end of the day, he must give an account to the cardiologist of his soul who this text tells us is able to test our hearts. It's serious to think about. We who have also been entrusted with the gospel as stewards will likewise give an account. So we say alongside of Paul that in our sharing of the gospel, we speak with sincerity in Christ as those from God and as those who speak before God. That's what we do in the sharing of our gospel at the same time. There are two witnesses that Paul calls the Thessalonians to remember as they turn the pages of this Shutterfly photo book, as it were. The first witness was the Thessalonians themselves. They knew that Team Paul didn't come with words of flattery to try to win them over. The second witness was God who contests motives. God was their witness that in their heart of hearts, there was not a greedy motive to preach. They didn't seek glory from people. In other words, they weren't interested in honor from people. They weren't interested in renown from people. They didn't really care about fame coming from other people. They, and Paul says he could have made a demand like apostles of Christ, and yet they didn't do so. He turned around and he says, but they were like children. Now, if you're following along in your text, your Bible may say they were gentle. Next to that word gentle, you may see a little footnote. If you trace that footnote down to the bottom of your page, you will see that some manuscripts use the word also children. They were like children. 
I decided to go that route of children versus gentle because I, I think that it, it fits right in line with what Paul was trying to do here. It fits right in line of how Paul was trying to explain the behavior of him and his team in light of these three denials. They did not come with a word of flattery or with a motive of greed or clamoring for honor like the typical traveling preachers on the stage with them. They were like infants among the Thessalonians. In other words, we know what infants are like. Infants are innocent. They came like innocent infants. As hard as it might be to believe when that baby is crying to the high heavens, little Andrew James Frank is not capable of deceptive speech. At this moment, baby Jackson Willard is not capable of having ulterior motives. Y'all know he didn't throw up on his daddy because he liked his mommy better. While little Ezekiel James is concerned with receiving attention, he's not concerned with demanding to be honored. Yes, it may seem that the world revolves around him at this moment, That's only because he needs to have his diaper changed. Children, infants, exude innocence. Infants are are innocent in their motives. As Paul calls the Thessalonians to, um, to flip through this photo book to remember their gospel call, they're reminded that team Paul were like children among them. They were innocent as children in their proclamation. We shared the gospel. This next session talks about how we shared our lives with you, verses 8 through 12. As we work our way through this letter, I hope that you pick up on the family language that Paul uses all throughout 1 Thessalonians. I'm struck by this as I recall the trip that Walt and I took to Pakistan. I remember sitting there as a group sharing the gospel to this young Christian man, and a thought hit me like a ton of bricks. If this young man comes to Christ, at the very least, he is in danger of losing his family at the very least, in danger of losing his family. It's within that that type of context that the Thessalonians might have known well. Early converts of Christianity were in danger and faced all type of social risks that we just don't face here in America. And one of those social risks are losing those who are part of your family. Paul infused his letter with family language to help them to see that in the church there is true kinship. In the church, there is God who is your father and Jesus who is your elder brother and your brothers and sisters next to you who are your true brothers and true sisters. In fact, 17 times in five chapters, Paul uses this word brother, implying brothers and sisters to call to mind what kind of relationship that they had. The two family terms that Paul uses in our text to describe how they were like among them were like a mother and like a father. It's a wonder at times that I sit back and I watch and, 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 and just stand in awe of how my wife loves our two girls. When I come across either coffee mugs or t-shirts that have mama bear on them, I'm just reminded of the fierce love that my wife has for our children. Paul reflects on his experience with the Thessalonians like, a, like the love of a mother. Verse 7, we were to you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. A mother, as we know in love, shares her very life, her very self with her children. So team Paul. So being 
affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Brothers, 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 brothers in here, brothers, do not let this use of language escape your attention. Paul had no problem whatsoever using maternal language to describe his feelings. It was such a security that he had in Christ that he was able to turn around and it allowed him to talk affectionately. We ought to take our cue from Paul, brothers. In Christ, it's not a knock against your manhood to use words affectionately to express the love that you have for your brothers and your sisters. Let all the brothers say amen. This love that team Paul had for the Thessalonians took them a step past just sharing the gospel. This was not a drive-by evangelism that we had here. Recalled of a story of a, of a person who experienced a drive-by evangelism. He was hanging out in the parking lot and a van rolled up on him. He didn't know what was about to happen. The window rolled down on the van and some kids threw out some gospel tracks at him. And as they were peeling off, they yelled out the window, Jesus loves you! not going to work. This drive-by evangelism is not giving credence to the fact that there needs to be a sharing of a life that happens at the same time. Not only did Paul and his team share the gospel and love, but they shared their very lives in love. This is a necessary component of sharing the gospel like mortar is to brick in building a wall. Sharing of the gospel also brought about a, a, a tactic in ministry in verse 9 through 10. Team Paul knew of the damage that a poor witness can do to the gospel proclamation. Did you hear what I just said? Team Paul recognized the damage that can happen to the gospel proclamation through a bad witness. We, we, right? You've seen that before, is that correct? Gospel call not connected with a gospel life does damage to the gospel call. Damage to it. And Paul understood that, so he turned around and had a tactic like not being paid for the proclamation of the gospel so it wouldn't be a stumbling block to him. Not only was Paul comfortable with being like a mother, he was also like a father. We might ask, what does it look like to be a father? Paul gives us a great example here. He says what it looks like to be a father is to be one who encourages, who exhorts, who, who comes alongside, and who says to his son, his child, walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, in a manner of worthy of God who is the kingdom. And that son, that child may turn around and say, well, Dad, where will I find this example of walking worthy? Paul would turn around and say, look at me. Spend a lot of time there with remember the call. Pastor Toph walked us well last week about the response from the Thessalonians. So if we think about remember the response in chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, the response was a response that we all in Christ have had and we all pray would happen for those who hear the gospel call that goes forth from us. Their response was that the Thessalonians received the word of God as it really was the word of God and not the word of men. And they turned around and they were also uh, those who imitated people who suffered for the reception of the gospel. Wish I could spend more time there. But let me close by asking this question. Let's just think for a second 
about why Paul wrote this the way he wrote it. Why this whole chapter of, of Paul calling them to remind, calling them to remembrance of the gospel call that he gave and the way that they received the gospel. Why? Why? You can see what he did, but why did he do it? Most people will say, and they, they are probably right here, that Paul was defending his ministry. We know in 2 Corinthians, Paul had to defend his ministry from those who came behind him and, dra- and dragged and, and drug his name. Drag, drug, what's the proper, what, 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 who took his name through the dirt. You all know what I'm trying to say, right? So he had to defend himself, and that very well could be happening here at this point. But I, I want us to consider for, some, for a second that something else may be happening and connected to what's happening in 2 Thessalonians. When you get a chance, go home and read 2 Thessalonians 3. And you'll see Paul say in 2 Thessalonians 3 that he put himself forward as an example, as one who worked, so that they can follow the example that he set. In other words, Paul, part of Paul's training ministry, part of Paul's teaching was to put himself forward as an imitation, to say, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. And I wonder... One of the other reasons in this chapter 2 of why Paul called them to walk now memory lane was to put himself and his team forward as an example for the Thessalonians to continue to imitate. In other words, imitate us in how we proclaim the gospel, both clearly and both with pure motives, and also imitate us in how we lived as a result of the gospel. Imitate us in how we received the word of God in much suffering and didn't allow... uh, didn't allow difficulties to get into the way. Imitate us in how we acted like a mother. Imitate us in how we acted like a father. Imitate us in how we live our lives as those who are looking to imitate Christ. I wonder if alongside of him defending himself, there's also some sort of imitation that's going on here. And I get that because in chapter 1 he talked about imitation, and in the end of chapter 2 he also mentions imitation. So what's the application for us today? Imitate. Imitate. Look at how Paul proclaimed the gospel, lived the gospel. Look how he not only shared the gospel with his, word, with his words, but he shared his very lives with them. Look at that, stare at that, and say, I'm going to imitate that. And then take it the next step forward and say, you know what? By God's grace, because of the goodness of God, I want to be the one, I want to be one who can call somebody alongside to say, imitate me. D.A. Carson, I can't remember exactly how he said it, but he said, are you afraid of calling somebody alongside to say, brother, sister, imitate me like I imitate Christ? Oh, would the Lord continue to work in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, that we might be ones who imitate what we see in the scriptures, but then call people forward to imitate us as we in turn imitate Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. I'm out of time. Father, so much stuff in your word to consider, to think through, to give ourselves much time to meditate on. I just want to say first and foremost, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that is able to be at work in the midst of us, your word that is doing work in believers, your word that's bearing gospel fruit, your word that is building in, such a, uh, in people such a response, Father, of who you are and what you've said to us. Thank you. Father, we join along Paul and we say thank you for the work of the gospel in our midst. We pray, Father, that you would continue to increase this work 
that you would bring forth even more fruits of faith and hope and love. And as we see how Paul has done it, oh, Father, would you help us to do it. Grant us much, much, much opportunity here in these days to proclaim and call people to the gospel and grant us much grace to live a life that's worthy of the gospel as we share not only the words of life to them, but we share our very lives. Would you please help us to do so? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Amen. Jubilee, let me invite you to stand to your feet. We want to read to you, right, in Thessalonians, a word as we prepare to leave this morning. We've gathered together in the name of Jesus Christ to worship, to fellowship, to sing, to hear God's word. We've come here to glorify God. And now, by his grace, we're leaving to go back out, to go into the world, to share and to proclaim the gospel of God to those who are around us. So as 1 Thessalonians started with Paul asking for grace, and as 1 Thessalonians ends with Paul speaking the grace of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in their life, it's in grace, it's in the name of Jesus that I read to you this benediction. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you Jubilee is faithful. He will surely do it. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you on this day. You are dismissed.